I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about military aid, equipment, technology, weapons to Ukraine, we have with us Dr. Cynthia Cook, who's the director of our Defense Industrial Initiatives Group and a senior fellow in the CSIS International Security Program. Cynthia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here. So I got to ask you, today's April 28th, and President Biden this morning announced $33 billion proposal of additional aid to Ukraine. Why does the United States need yet another aid package for Ukraine? We've already given them $3 billion. I mean, certainly we need to keep aiding them, but like $33 billion seems a lot more than $3 billion. The strategy for this aid package seems to be focused on a longer-term investment in Ukraine. Previous authorizations and aid packages were meant to support Ukrainians just for a matter of weeks. So this one makes a predictable investment through the end of the fiscal year. And so do we know what's in this aid package and why it's so much larger than the previous ones, other than that it's a long-term solution? Is there, is there specific things that we know what's in it yet? Well, it is a long-term solution, and we don't know the specifics, but there is some general information about the dollar breakdown of, of what's in the package. There's $6 billion set aside for the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, which is the DOD program that predated the war and has been the department's primary vehicle for training and equipping the Ukrainian military. Over $5 billion is set to replenish U.S. stockpiles after materials were transferred to Ukraine under the previous authority. Other defense funding includes a couple of billion dollars to fund the deployment of troops and other assets to Europe. There's uh, $550 million to establish a critical munitions acquisition fund and foreign military financing, which in essence is a grant that the Ukrainians can use to buy American military equipment. So now there is urgency, of course, for Ukraine. How does it help Ukraine right now at this stage? This package will allow the flow of additional artillery, armored vehicles, anti-armor capabilities, and anti-air capabilities to flow into Ukraine uninterrupted. That will help them as they posture their own forces against the Russians. Let's talk about what's going on right now. How has, in your view, Cynthia, the changing nature of the battle from defending cities like Kyiv to facing more frontal assaults in the Donbass impacted Ukraine's needs for certain types of weapons like javelins, stingers versus tanks, artillery, armored personnel carriers? What do you think? Well, as you point out, their strategy has changed. Their initial strategy seems to have been to encircle and take the city of Kyiv as part of an attempt to decapitate Ukrainian leadership and install a new puppet government. The framing assumption seems to have been that they would be welcomed with parades and flowers. And that was obviously incorrect as Ukraine started to fight in an existential battle for its freedom and independence. During the initial phases of the war, Ukraine was focused on defense. They didn't need to maneuver large units of infantry. They had soldier portable systems like the Javelin anti-tank missile that were focused on destroying Russia's capabilities. And the Javelin weighs about 50 pounds, so a soldier can easily carry that. 
Is there anything that the Ukrainians should be receiving right now that they aren't already getting? The Ukrainians, of course, want every single weapon system that they can get their hands on that would make a difference, including heavy weapons and aircraft. U.S. policymakers need to match what weapons the U.S. is sending to Ukraine to the U.S.'s operational and strategic goals. Systems like javelins and body armor and aerial surveillance are certainly important enablers for the Ukrainians, but they're not the sort of systems that would allow them to push Russia back to the position that it held before it started invading Ukraine in February. In short, they can defend against Russia right now, but they can't push back against the territory that Russia has gained. In order for the Ukrainian army to be effective in maneuver battles against the Russians, they need the sort of systems that we've been seeing in more recent arms packages. For example, the Canadians announced that they're sending artillery along the United States. A variety of different capabilities could start to make a difference for Ukrainians as they work to push back the Russians, including armored vehicles, radars, artillery rounds, and so forth. But in the end, there's no what should we be sending. In the end, it's a policy decision for the Biden administration and the other partners working to support Ukraine. Do they want the Ukrainians just to be able to wear down the Russians as they attempt to advance? Or do they want to help the Ukrainians go back on the offensive and take back the territory that the Russians gained in the initial phases of the war? What are some of the newer technologies being used in this conflict? Are we giving new technologies to Ukraine? We are giving some new technologies that have been in the news. And for some of them, we don't have a lot of specific details about what they can do. For example, there is a loitering munition that's called Phoenix Ghost that was developed by the Air Force. This has an improved loiter time over the switchblade, up to six hours, and also carries a bigger warhead. The switchblade has been used in the past on a smaller scale, but this is the first time that loitering munitions like the switchblade have been used to the extent that they have. So both of those represent new technologies that are being used in the conflict. Has Russia used anything new? The only system that comes to mind that Russia has used for the first time is the Kinsal hypersonic missile, although it hasn't used that one in battle, just as a test. What we're seeing in Ukraine that is significant for Russia is that they have used a lot of these weapons in the past, but they've put them together working in concert in the battle in Ukraine in the updated way. President Biden so far has not activated the Defense Production Act. We know from our colleague Mark Kansian that, you know, because we're giving so many javelins, for instance, and stingers to the Ukrainians, we're running a bit short of supply on our own here in the United States. Do you think the president needs to get the DPA started? Starting the DPA would really depend on what an analysis of the system as a whole said. To what extent are there limits in surge capacity of the factories in the supply chain and in the workforce and in the other capabilities that make up an effective production line? So the decision to enact the DPA will depend on a variety of considerations that will need to be reviewed by the government. Cynthia, I want to have you back on to talk in more depth about recovery and what that will mean for Ukraine. But at the outset here, I just want to ask you, 
you know, you're re- you wrote a recent commentary that described the situation in Ukraine as a whole of economy disaster. What do you mean by that? We use the disaster recovery framework to think about rebuilding Ukraine. The question there is, how does Ukraine differ from a typical disaster? A disaster may be a flood, a hurricane, or a complex disaster like the tsunami that led to the Fukushima nuclear plants meltdown and problems. So no matter the extent of these, they tend to be localized. They tend to have a single or a a couple of vectors of damage. And the recovery plan focuses on those relatively limited areas of damage and destruction. In contrast, Russia's war on Ukraine has gone beyond a relatively simple or single vector disaster. It's not, you know, the the fire burned down and it burned down a lot of houses. How do we have to build them? They have damaged so much of Ukraine's infrastructure. There's reports of a lack of water, a lack of electricity. Bridges and roads have been destroyed. People's places of work have been destroyed, schools, hospitals, and so forth. So really, it's not just a question of rebuilding homes for people to move back home and go back to work. The whole infrastructure of the economy needs to be reviewed, and the areas of rebuilding are going to go beyond any one small location or one type of recovery. So as Ukraine moves forward, they're going to need a pretty solid vision for recovery and a recovery plan. Now, we're a long way from recovery because the Ukrainians are, you know, just fighting tooth and nail to hold what they have here. But what do you think recovery in Ukraine will look like in the aftermath of the war? The needs are so profound. It's somewhat daunting to think about. So many people have left, have become refugees in other countries they, at this point, don't know what they're going to face when they go home. They don't know if they'll have a home, if they'll have a a place to work, if their children will be able to go to school, if they'll have a place to get medical care. Even if they can can, uh, move along the road, can they drive to where they need to be? So really understanding the extent of the damages and the needs will be the first step towards recovery. And Starting the process of collecting them, I don't think it's, it's too soon for that. And there's a lot of open source information and data that can be used to really start collecting an inventory of what's been damaged so that the extent of resources for rebuilding will be understood and you know, people can start planning a way forward. President Zelensky, you know, he he may be able to win the war. And after he wins the war, he'll have to win the peace and and help the people of Ukraine recover. It's a big job to be sure. Dr. Cynthia Cook, thank you so much for coming on Truth of the Matter today to help us understand what's going on with aid, what's going on with weapons and the future of this conflict a bit. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, 
Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 